0: With me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 49. Uh, Genesis 49, we'll read the first 27 verses. Um, many of you are new here, uh, so it's, it's our practice at Grace Covenant uh, to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, so if you're able to do that now, let me ask that you uh, stand together as we read Genesis 49, verses 1 through 27. Then Jacob called his sons and and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet, his bow remained unmoved. His arms are made agile. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob... From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us your spirit now to hear, to understand, to love, and most importantly, to be changed by your word. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Jacob has lived now 147. By the way, if you're visiting with us this morning for the first time, uh, you caught us uh, in the last, uh, one of the last sermons in our series in uh, Genesis. Uh, so just in time to hear um, what in many ways may sound a little like a confusing passage. There are parts of it that really make you kind of go, huh, what? and scratch your head. Uh, Jacob's now 147 years old um, and death is near. He knows uh, that he is about uh, to die, to be gathered with his people. In fact, in the very next passage, uh, at the end of chapter 49, uh, Jacob does indeed die and is buried. And so he calls his sons together. And notice we're told in the first couple of verses why He gathered them all there in the room with Him. He's not giving them marriage advice. He's not giving them parenting advice. He's not telling them how to live as Hebrews, as God's covenant people in a foreign land in Egypt. He doesn't gather them together to tell them what to do. He calls them together. Notice we're told, verse 1, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. In other words, Jacob has gathered his sons together not to tell them how to live, but to tell them what's going to happen. He's, He's prophesying to them. He's telling them the future. He's giving them the future of, well the days to come. Is He talking the next few weeks? Is He talking the next few years? The reality is, over the next uh, 26 verses, 25 verses I guess from 3 to 27, He's actually looking anywhere from 400 to 1,800 years into the future. Not all of the prophecies for these sons will all come true. They're not all going to come to fruition at the same time in the same place. He's looking at the days to come. In some cases those days are four hundred years away, four hundred and forty ish years away. Perhaps four hundred and eighty years away. Perhaps eighteen hundred years into the future. The reality is he's telling his sons what's going to happen, not to them, but to their descendants. He's looking far enough into the future that these young men, old men, many of them by this time, won't be around to see it. He's talking about a future they will never get to live through personally. He's talking about their descendants. How is it that Jacob can do that? I mean... You have to ask that question, right? How is it that Jacob can look that far into the future and tell his sons not what might, could, maybe, possibly happen, but what shall happen? This isn't the fortune cookie you get in uh, the, the fortune you get in your fortune cookie. You know, we've we've mentioned this before. Specific enough to make you raise your eyebrows, general enough that you throw it away. This isn't that kind of. Well, in the future, you're going to meet somebody you've never met before. That's, he's pretty specific. But why is it? How is it that Jacob can look that far into the future and tell his sons this is what will happen? Well, it's simple really. God knows and controls the future. And God is making that known to Jacob. See, there are those in our world today who would say that as the future becomes your present, it's becoming God's present too. You know, as, as the, you don't know the future, and as the future, sort of as you learn it, as you live your life, you know, God doesn't know what's going to happen either, and, and He's learning just like you and I are. They say, well, here, this passage, Jacob knows the future and can, can prophesy like this with this kind of precision that far in the future because His God holds the future and is making that known to Him. The order in which he addresses his sons is not birth order. Don't turn to Genesis 49 and say, well, I can recite the sons of Jacob in order from oldest to youngest. This is the wrong chapter. They're grouped by their mothers. Uh, Leah first. uh, Rachel is last. The two maidservant concubine wives are in the middle. We're not going to examine every prophecy. I'll leave you... To read future, maybe I'll even give you a for future reading somewhere down the road. Uh, instead, we're going to see them in three headings. The outline in your bulletin is backwards. I'm doing it up the bulletin instead of down. So, whatever you're looking at, if that really matters to you, the three of you that actually care about that, we're going in reverse order. First, there are prophecies that are directed by the past. I'm not even sure what words are in your bulletin. So, the there are prophecies directed by the past. Look at verse 3. Reuben is the oldest. He is the firstborn. And as such, he should be the recipient of all the great blessings, of double honor, of all the privilege. He should be preeminent in dignity and in power. He should be the leader of his family. He should be the chief clan, the chief territory in years to come. But there's verse 4. He's unstable. He's, he's governed, ruled by his passions. He's unreliable. He yields too quickly to his emotions and his passions. See, Reuben back in chapter 35 committed adultery with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine wife, Leah's maidservant. Now, it's been years. It's been decades, actually, since that event. And you get the sense from Jacob that it is fresh on his mind. You should be preeminent. You're the firstborn. And because you're the firstborn, you should have all the honor. Remember, that's been given in the last chapter. That was given to Joseph and to his sons. You should have all the honor. Jacob hasn't forgotten what Reuben did. And I love the exclamation at the end of verse 4. You almost get the picture that Jacob, weak in his eyes as he is, looking at Reuben Announcing this, what should be a blessing, kind of becoming a curse. And then he turns his attention to the other brothers and gestures to Ruth. He went up to my couch. It's got the sound of shock and surprise to it. Can you believe what he did? Imagine being Simeon at this point your weight shifting, your palms sweating. You're kind of examining your past in your mind. You're getting nervous. This isn't going to go well. And then Jacob treats Simeon and Levi together in verses 5 and 6. And the reason he treats them, he treats their future together, is because their past is tied together. He lumps them into one future, their futures are tied together. Uh, together, because back in chapter 34, Shechem, the son of really, I guess the mayor of the town of Shechem, um, raped their sister. And then said, I want to marry her. Daddy, get her for me. And so when his daddy went to go get her for him, uh, Simeon and Levi lead the way in retaliating. Against the Shechemites. They lied to them. Well, if you were all circumcised like we are, then we could have this conversation. And so when they did, when they followed through, when they were circumcised, Simeon and Levi led the raid that attacked the town and killed every man in it. They too are driven by their passions it's a different passion but it's it's lack of self control it's lack of they're so angry they get so hot headed so quickly that they lack any self control they lied to the shechemites they tricked them they took advantage of them they murdered them they robbed them oh and they're so ruled by their anger verse 6 that just out of sheer meanness, they hamstrung oxen. What would drive you to take a knife and, and cut the hamstring of an ox? I mean, if nothing else, you need them for plowing fields and harvesting grain. and th- It's just mean. They're that mean, that angry, that spiteful. They're that kind of people. And Jacob says, so angry are they, I don't want any part of their counsel. I want no part of whatever advice they would try to give me. Simeon and Levi lose out on gaining land in the promised land, verse 7. They will be divided In Jacob, scattered in Israel. Neither one of them really has much of an inheritance, much of a land in the promised land. Simeon gets a little bit, but then he gets swallowed up by Judah. Levi, as you know, has no territory of his own, they're scattered among the people. Some of these prophecies are directed by the past. Don't miss the truth of these verses. Sin has consequences. We'd like to think, oh, but I'm I'm a, I'm a Christian. Yes, I know I sin. Yes, I know Christ has paid for that sin. Yes, I know I'm forgiven for it. And yes, I know I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. Shouldn't that mean I don't have to deal with the consequences of my sin? I mean shouldn't forgiveness mean that when I sin the consequences are kind of taken away too? That's sin has consequences. Sin has effects in your life. If you commit adultery, you may very well lose your family, your children, and the person with whom you commit adultery. If you steal, if you rob from people, then expect to go to prison. Sin has its consequences, sin has its effects. And the consequences here for Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are losing their place among God's people in the Promised Land. There are prophecies directed by the past, there are also prophecies despite the past. Judah is worse off than Simeon. Judah is now nervous. Three straight brothers, three straight brothers guilty of significant, gross, memorable sin have now lost their rights, have lost their place, Have lost their standing. Judah is convinced he's doomed. But look at verses 8 through 12. Everything changes in verse 8. Judah, see, the next line should be You too, like your brothers, are doomed. Instead, your brothers will praise you your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. In other words, he's going to have power and he's going to have authority. So powerful, so strong will the tribe of Judah be that when they go to battle, their hand is on the neck of their enemies. In other words, their enemies are powerless against them. They're basically uh, putty in Judah's hands. So powerful will he be against his enemies, and he's going to rule forever. the The scepter will not be taken from Judah. The ruler's staff will remain between his feet. In other words, he's always going to be sitting on the throne of authority and power among God's people. He's a lion. He's the king of beasts. He's a, a strong, powerful lion. Certainly David was from the tribe of Judah. But Jacob envisions a greater David. Jacob looks ahead not just to King David who was great, surely, but not the greatest. Because there's a descendant coming from David for whom that scepter of rule and power and authority will never ever be taken away. And that is Christ Himself. Jacob looks ahead and sees the promise of the Messiah coming from Judah's line. And He will rule and reign forever over His people and over all of creation. In fact, His reign will be such that grapevines will be strong enough to tie donkeys to. So healthy and strong will these grapevines be that you can just tie your, your donkey, tie your horse to that. It's sturdy enough. It's strong enough. It's powerful enough to hold them. So plentiful will wine be that it'll be like water. Just wash your clothes in it. Something so plentiful, so everywhere, so commonplace. It's a picture of blessing for God's people. Is it any wonder then that that Jesus in His first public ministry on earth, public miracle on earth, was to change water into wine? The people around them, they recognized the connection. They recognized... Whoa, whoa, wait. Hold on. Water to wine. Jacob talked about this. That wine would be more plentiful than water. That so abundant would wine be that you might as well wash your clothes in that because it's easier to find than water. And so when Jesus turned water into wine, they immediately made the connection. Look, this isn't the prophecy Judah expected. You see, Judah has children by his son's wife. But it's okay because he thought she was a prostitute. That's not better. That doesn't help. You see, Judah... Is no less guilty than Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Judah is no more righteous than the first three who were disqualified. So, what then? Why on earth would Jacob change his tune all of a sudden in verse 8? Why is it not the case that Judah gets dismissed just like the older brothers did because he's just as guilty as they are? Yes, normally sin has consequences, but sometimes God chooses by His grace to override those consequences. Judah understands total dependence on the grace and mercy of God. He's not worthy. He's unworthy of the promise set out before Him. He's unworthy of what shall happen in the future. But His God's not. His Savior's not. His Redeemer's not. He looks outside of Himself because there is grace in God only. And He's not worthy in and of Himself. It's a picture of a gracious God who pours out blessings on unworthy and unlikely sinners. You know, there's something about this passage. This is the first time a patriarch, this is the first time a father has been able to pass on blessings to all of his children. Um, Ishmael was sent away. Esau was sent away. Jacob gets to pass on blessings to every single one of his children. Here's what you need to recognize. They all enter the promised land. They're all there. They all inherit land or a place in the promised land in some way or another. None of them is is going to be left out. None of them is going to, to miss out. In other words, they're all saved by grace. They all are delivered into the promised land even though once there, their function and responsibility and and temporal earthly blessings will be different. Judah will be preeminent among the brothers. The promised Messiah comes from Judah, not from Reuben, not from Simeon, not from Levi, and for that matter, not even from Joseph, whom all along you and I would have expected, well, surely this is the one. Surely it's through Joseph that this promised seed of the woman is going to come. Now that Jesus will come from Judah. In fact, the Apostle John picks up on this in Revelation 5 when he sees Jesus and describes Him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lion of lions. He's a lion among lions. There are prophecies directed by the past. There are prophecies despite the past. And finally, there are prophecies that are divorced from the past that as far as we can tell, there's no real connection to anything we know about their past. Like, we don't look at Zebulun and go, well, sure, because back in chapter 32, he was a sailor. So we totally understand that he's going to be a seafaring, but we don't have that. So the, the rest of the prophecies seem somewhat divorced from the past, not necessarily connected to, uh, with Joseph as the one exception. Notice verse 13. Zebulun will dwell at the shore, be a seafaring people. He'll benefit from uh, life on ships. Truth is, uh, we know that uh, from Joshua 19 that Zebulun didn't actually inherit land on the sea, but he does bump up against Sidon, Phoenicia. They are seafaring people he benefits from uh, their profession. Or look at verse 14, Issachar. Strong as a donkey, Issachar has a problem. He's strong enough, but he's also lazy. He looks for a couple of sheepfolds to lie down between those. He looks for nice plush, you know, lush green grass, because it would make a nice soft bed. And there he lies down. Only to discover later that he gets defeated by Canaanites and is forced into slave labor or the tribe of Dan who becomes judge despite being actually one of the smallest and notice verse 16 he is one of the tribes of Israel this is the first son that Jacob gets to in this list who's the son of a concubine and he's saying Dan has full status as a son Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel he's cunning he's crafty And the picture there in 17 and 18 may look ahead to Samson who would judge Israel and is from the tribe of Dan. And the rest, for the most part, seem no connection to the past. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, this seems sort of odd. Maybe even a little bit random. It's almost like Jacob's hunting for something to say about his sons, and about their future. Do you remember Romans 9? Um, I've not spent a whole lot of time around pottery. I know some people that have. There's some people in this room that have. Um, We had a a friend in our church in Oxford who made pottery. We have some of his coffee mugs. They're great. I've never... He posts stuff on Instagram all the time, and so I'm always kind of... Checking to see what he's making lately. I, I'm, I keep waiting for the day when he says, you're not going to believe what happened today. I grabbed a lump of clay to make a vase and it argued with me. And it said, no, 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 no. I'm not a vase. I'm not vase clay. I'm a bowl. Actually, rather large platter. That, that's really what I should be. You should Make a platter out of me. Like, he's never said I had... Clay, argue with me today. I've never seen that. I've never heard of a potter saying, I, I couldn't work with the clay because it argued and fussed and complained the whole time. That, that's part of the picture here in Genesis 49. That God's the potter and we're the clay just as Paul tells us in Romans 9. And He can shape us and mold us and use us as He will according to His perfect wisdom, according to His perfect Plan. Oh, how often we'd like to argue. Oh, how often we'd love to fuss and say, but, 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 I'm not supposed to be this. I'm supposed to be that. You're doing it all wrong, God. The reality is, just as God is sovereign in our salvation, He's also sovereign in temporal, earthly blessings and can use us as He sees fit. Chapter points us to a God who is sovereign. And the more we grab onto that biblical truth, the greater our faith, the greater our trust, the more biblical the God we worship. How do you apply this chapter to us today? Let me make just a couple of applications. Um, okay, four, I think it is. Uh, first is this. Just just that. God is sovereign. We worship an, an immortal, invisible, omnipotent, sovereign king of the universe. And we need to grow in our knowledge of and love for and trust in an all-sovereign God who will do His infinite perfect wisdom in His infinite perfect timing as He sees fit despite the fact So far often, we don't get it. This passage drives us to a sovereign God. Granting blessing to whom He chooses. Second, let me make this one sort of observation. This is sort of an aside, really. And it's a question of um, what do you do with that blank piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew? Matthew. What do you do between that blank piece of paper that separates, in your Bible, that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament? Is that a a concrete wall through which nothing can go? Is it porous? What's the continuity between the old and the new? There's the question. Because in Revelation 21, John has a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is the dwelling place for God's people for all eternity coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem has gates. And it has actually 12 gates. And the names on those gates, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and on down the line. In other words, they will dwell where we will dwell. There is one people of God, not two. He has one covenant plan, one covenant uh, uh, unfolding gradually over time and through His Word. One covenant people, not two. The church is not a... Plan B, the church is not a oops. The church is not a, well, Israel messed up, so let me come back later and deal with them after I do the church. There's one people of God, and we see that when you connect Revelation 21 with this chapter. These 12 sons, their names are written on the gates in the New Jerusalem. Third application, uh, you and I need to understand... Uh, particularly, you children, you probably know this better than most. Sin has consequences. When you disobey your parents, you should expect a spanking. Sin has consequences, sin has results. And sometimes that means loss of some. Temporal or earthly right. For example, in the case of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, it's, it's the role of leadership. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to start a sermon series, I think, Lord willing, in Titus. And there we find the qualifications for elder. And there are sins that disqualify us from the office of elder. It doesn't disqualify you from forgiveness, from salvation in Christ, from eternity in heaven, from a place in the promised land as it were, just as these twelve can expect. But it might disqualify you from office in the church as elder or deacon. Certain past sins will have consequences into the future. Lack of self-control, the inability to control anger or passions, quite honestly, the same thing Reuben, Simeon, and Levi dealt with they can disqualify you from the office of elder. One final application. This passage proves you are not good enough. This passage proves that we, God's people, cannot never ever have and never ever will gain His favor by our fill in the blank. Merit. Goodness, obedience, hair color, skin color, lineage, parents, grandparents, sons, daughters, great grandchildren. You and I will never ever gain God's favor except by grace. You deserve worse than the temporal blessings you do have because we commit. Cosmic treason every single day. Sinning against daily in thought, word, and deed, against the triune God of the universe. And yet God is gracious. He uses unworthy, guilty sinners to accomplish his purposes in this world. How can you have the hope of salvation? Well, Jacob actually proclaims the gospel in this chapter. Look at verse eighteen. There's a random phrase. A random verse. In light of Dan as judge, it drives him to be reminded all over again, Lord, I wait for Your salvation. Dan will serve as judge, but he is not the judge. He is not the one who can declare us not guilty because of the blood of Christ. Lord, I wait for Your salvation because we need Your Messiah. We need our Savior. We need a Redeemer. And He's not in this room, Jacob is saying to you and to me. Maybe you're thinking, you don't know how bad I've been. Judah has children by his son's wife, That he thought was a prostitute. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, just out of pure mean anger, went and killed people at hamstrung oxen. They have a place in the promised land. Get in line. God's grace is sufficient. Run to the cross and there find forgiveness. Let's pray together.